Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. Today, I am so delighted to have Rhett Nelson of Clothes with me. How are you, Rhett? I'm doing great, Whistling. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Let me tell you a little bit about Rhett. He has been in tech sales for more than eight years. He's worked at different companies, ranging from a small business HR tech to enterprise e-commerce technology. Throughout his career, Rhett has had the opportunity to work with clients from over 80 different countries around the world. He has experienced coaching, mentoring, and growing teams at scale and is a proven leader. Prior to his career, he played collegiate basketball at BYU, where he learned the value of building and contributing to high-performance teams. His most amazing accomplishment is having two fantastic kids, and he loves spending time with his wife. So tell us, Rhett, how did you get started at BYU, before BYU, and how did you get to where you are today? One thing I got to point out right away with Celine is I, I actually did not play basketball. I played baseball. If I were athletic enough to play basketball, then I definitely would have. Oh. <laughs> I, yeah. You know, given I was a little bit limited on the athletic end, I ended up playing baseball. And then plus, I was a pitcher to boot. So that means I was really a non-athlete. Uh-huh. Uh, I am was, so sorry. <laughs> no, all good. I just, yeah, I need to make sure that's clear. Again, if I were good enough to play basketball, I certainly would have. But yeah, you know, Utah native, born and raised here in Utah, had the, a really great opportunity to play college baseball at, at BYU. And that's actually kind of what opened the door for me to get into tech sales, because previously I was pre-law, I was actually a history major, right? So kind of random, you know, getting ready to take the LSAT. And then a lot of these tech companies in Utah Valley were actively recruiting collegiate athletes. So as I'd go to these booths and start shaking some hands, I found that they were interested in me for reasons that are totally unclear. They wanted me to be an account executive. I knew nothing about that. And I decided, you know what, I can go to law school and get in a bunch of debt, or maybe I can give this account executive thing a try. And, you know, here I am however many years later, and it's worked out pretty well. So the overview that you gave was great. I've had an opportunity to work with some really great companies in some really unique industries have loved it. And now as I'm operating now more on the sales leadership side of things, you know, have made my way here to Closed, which is just a really, really awesome, innovative company. I love what we're doing here. And yeah, that's a little bit about my journey. So let's go back to Rhett in college. So when you were in college, you said, okay, I'm going to take the LSAT. I want to go to law school. What made you really have this desire and this passion to pursue the law? Yeah, it's a great question. So I've always loved to read and I've always loved to write. I've always been a little bit of a history nerd. And those who know me well know that I'm just kind of a nerd in general. So I'm as somebody who loves to read and I've always been very interested in, you know, political science and pop culture and just everything that kind of shapes the world as we know it. You know, to me, the legal route was just kind of the lowest hanging fruit. And, you know, I don't think that I was totally convinced that that's what I wanted to do. But you know, as a lot of collegiate athletes are, we kind of flounder and hope that we, you know, find something that we feel like we can actually transition into a career. So, you know, I can't say that I grew up watching like every legal drama out there, you know, and totally convinced I was going to be a lawyer. But, you know, I figured I love to write, I love to read, I'm super interested in some of these elements, let's give it a try, which is also why, you know, again, it didn't take a ton of convincing for me to at least look into this AE role. I think it's clear that I was a little bit, I was easily convinced to maybe try something else when the opportunity came up. Mm. So it was really that, uh, well, what can I do with my degree? Um, This is the path that most people are taking, so I think I might try it. And because you weren't that, like, deeply committed and in love with it, you said, I'll try something else. And if it doesn't work out, I can always hop back and go to law school. 
Yeah, you know, it was fascinating because as I was preparing to take the LSAT, I, I'm fortunate to have a number of attorneys in my network, and I sat down with probably two dozen attorneys, and I, I just wanted to interview them, get a feel for the type of law that they practiced, and I could not believe how many of them just said, don't do it. <laughs> they said, run wow. the other way. It was crazy hearing from them that, hey, that the profession isn't what it used to be. You know, here are all the things that you need to be aware of. These are the reasons why we'd recommend you. You may be looking at something else. So when the attorneys themselves were telling me like overwhelmingly, hey, maybe don't do this, yeah. that was really the catalyst to kind of open my, you know, be a little bit more open to some alternative options. And it was just kind of right around that time that, again, going to some of these career fairs and there's some really prestigious tech companies here in Utah Valley and, you know, meeting with some of those companies and shaking some hands. And, you know, again, like I said, for reasons that are unclear to me, but they wanted to start offering, uh, you know, account executive roles to some of, you know, these collegiate athletes. And I'm glad that I took a chance on it. Mm, that's fantastic. I actually, I have met companies that focus only on placing college athletes into sales careers. And when I drilled down a little bit deeper and I'm like, so why that? Like of all the things that you can do, they were obviously former athletes. And they said, because of the discipline that you have to learn when you're in college, you have to be places at certain times. You have to take that really hard feedback really well. You know how to win and then go and fight again, go and play again. It's like that kind of tenacity they found set people up for success really well in sales careers. So as a young college athlete just wet behind the ears and said, I'm going to be an AE, tell us about those early days of your sales career. <laughs> Yeah, I think there is something to that, right? There's no question. I think that, you know, being fortunate enough to be involved in collegiate athletics definitely, you know, put me in a situation where I had to get comfortable being uncomfortable. That was a big part of it, right? Because you get to college and the entire day is, is monopolized. You don't have a free moment in your calendar, you know, basically ever, it seems like. Um, balancing school, balancing, you know, training, you know, trying to keep your body healthy, trying to nurture these relationships with teammates. I think that's really how I describe it is when you can be in an environment where you're constantly uncomfortable and then learn how to be comfortable. That's a pretty rare thing. And it's a hard thing. And I personally, as a leader, I've, you know, hired a number of, you know, former athletes, and they've done extremely well. But then I've also hired a number of people who weren't former athletes that have done, you know, even better. So it's definitely not to say that you need to be cut from that specific cloth. I think that there are plenty of people people, you know, well, you know, outside of the realm of athletics that have shown a propensity to, you know, be comfortable in uncomfortable situations. But yeah, for whatever reason, a lot of collegiate athletes tend to develop a, you know, an ability to kind of roll with the punches, which as you know, I think in sales, that's really imperative. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest lesson that you learned being a collegiate athlete that you still use and practice today? Probably going to sound a little bit cheesy, but I really think that the four minute mile example is something that always resonates with me. And, you know, again, nobody could run a four minute mile. Everybody thought that it was something that was basically impossible until one person goes and does it. And then lo and behold, everybody else kind of starts doing it as well. Um, I saw this repeatedly throughout my collegiate career that the way that I, I position it in my mind is that I think that the largest barriers that prohibit us from reaching our goals are typically the barriers that we impose upon ourselves. And oftentimes that can be subconsciously. We're not deliberately doing it, but we put these barriers in our minds that, that limit us you know, from achieving our full potential. I've seen it over and over again, athletically and in my profession where all it takes is one person to come in and kind of challenge what that bar is in terms of what constitutes a top rep or a top performer, right? Uh, when somebody comes in and they kind of break through that barrier, 
there's always a line of people that follow suit and then now everybody's doing it. So I've always been fascinated with the concept of people that not only try and identify like what is the optimal level of performance, but also how do we break through that level and achieve an entirely new level? I had the opportunity to work with some of the most talented baseball players in the country when I was playing and seeing how they just, the biggest difference was their mentality. They didn't place those mental barriers upon themselves. They really viewed their potential as limitless. And mm -hmm. so when you're not limiting yourself, it's amazing what you can accomplish because again, oftentimes it's just us kind of in our own head, getting in our own way. Mm, I call it mental spaghetti, if you will. It's like you mm. have all of these things that are interconnected and interrelated and you have this thing telling you to do this and that thing telling you to do that. And every day, every moment you have the chance, the opportunity to decide which path to take. And so really having that mental toughness, what I know in the work that I do when I'm working with sales organizations and sales teams, those are the people that you see rising to the top. It's yes, you can have a good month, a good quarter, a good year, but what happens when you don't have one? How do you get through having a bad month, a bad quarter, when you have something tragic happening in your life and still show up at work every day to perform and keep going? I love that. And I've actually never thought about it in terms of mental spaghetti. If it's okay with you, I'm definitely going to steal that from you. Take that, it. <laughs> that, I see it. I, it's a perfect visual representation of the concept. I love that. Yes, it, it literally is. Because it's just like all of this, these things <laughs> interconnected and you don't know, you can't pull one out from the other because it's all of the thoughts. So right. you moved from being an AE. How long did it take you to move into a management role? A couple of years. So I had an opportunity to be in kind of an, an AE role, then a little bit of a team lead role, which is a little bit of a player coach, which was nice because you kind of get to dip your toe in first and get a little bit familiar with it. Because I think that every leader knows that that initial dive into full leadership is always kind of a daunting one, right? It's funny, I've, I've spoken with many AEs that I've worked with over the years, but I think that there's always a point in the AE life cycle where you kind of think, man, if I were in charge, I would solve all these problems like that, right? I feel like I've got it figured out. You feel like you kind of know everything. And then as you transition into leadership, you're privy to a lot of the conversations that go into the policies that get made and you have access to all of these different data points that are being considered. And then you realize pretty quickly, like, man, these are hard problems that we're trying to solve. And you, you really gain a level of empathy for the leaders that you worked with in the past, because you don't fully realize everything that's kind of going into a lot of these strategic decisions from the outside looking in. But yeah, you know, I've been in a full leadership role now for about six years or so. And I've had the opportunity to manage a lot of, I mean, at this point, you know, hired and manage, you know, probably right around roughly 100 AEs at this point. And it's been a blast. I learned from just as much from them as hopefully they learned from me. What is the thing that you, when you first got into management, into, uh, first we'll start with management and then we'll move into your role as a leader. What's that thing that nobody told you <laughs> that you wish you would have known? Oh man. I think that the biggest thing is that satisfaction is a function of expectations. And again, my team will kind of roll their eyes when they hear that because I say this constantly, but that's kind of a life principle that I always go back to. I think that so much, you can mitigate so many misunderstandings and so much confusion as a leader if you just simply set really clear expectations. And that's a, that is also congruent with our, the sales process, right? When we're working with clients, if we can manage expectations and set very realistic expectations, then we, you know, then in turn, we'll also be able to manage the satisfaction of that as well. So I think with my team, I always try and do a really good job. And that's not to say that I always do. I'm sure there's a, a million of opportunities for me to improve on this, but I, I try and make it very conscious 
conscious effort to make sure expectations are very, very clear. And if even if you can just do that alone, you're really putting yourself in a position where you can save a lot of headaches, where if you and your team are not operating on the same wavelength and their expectations are not synonymous or they're not congruent between those two groups, then yeah, there's going to be a ton of headaches, a ton of miscommunications, a lot of frustration. So yeah, just simply over communicating the why, making sure that expectations are really clear. I think that that sets both parties up for a lot of success if we can just communicate that element. When was the time in the past six years that that, you know, this concept, I got to set these expectations, but the expectations were either not communicated well or it was a bad expectation. Um, share with us a specific example of that. Man, I'm sure there's so many I could pull from. I'm trying to think of the one that was the biggest catastrophe, if I can. <laughs> I think that, you know, naturally expectations specifically around performance management, right? Mm. So I think that every sales leader has, you know, you've had one of your AEs or you've had, you know, somebody who reports to you and you're in a position where you need to performance manage. And I think the thing with every good performance management structure is that how can we get the most out of this person and how can we set them up or put them in a position where they can be successful? It's incumbent upon me as the leader to make sure that they have a path to be successful and that if they have the talent, if they have the energy, the devotion to get it done, how can I put them on that path to be successful? So I have, for example, earlier in my career, if those performance management expectations are not crystal clear, then that's absolutely a situation where you're setting yourself up for a lot of a lot of headaches. And so yeah. I remember there was one occasion where, you know, I had to put one of my direct reports on a performance improvement plan. Yeah. Um, never a fun conversation, definitely a crucial conversation, a hard one to navigate. But what I didn't realize at the time is that the actual achievables, the metrics behind that performance improvement plan were not very well communicated or very well established. Mm -hmm. There was no follow-up directly following the conversation, which is absolutely critical, right? Mm -hmm. Um, there needs to be something documented, something tangible. It needs to be associated with a time frame. Like it just needs to be bulletproof so that yeah. if we're having a conversation relative to one's employment at the company, again, very sensitive conversation, the due diligence definitely needs to be there. And in this particular case, it was not, right? Mm -hmm. I kind of dropped the ball in that regard. It was early in my time as a leader. And so what happened was from my perception or from my perspective, this particular rep did not achieve those metrics. And so when I go back and we have to have that conversation, they were not on that same page. They were not under the mm. assumption or they did not have the perception that they, that they missed those metrics. And now we're basically back at square one and both parties are frustrated. So it's basically a lose-lose all around. That's why I think that that over-communication and that extreme diligence around you know, the finite details of something that is particularly sensitive in nature yeah. is really, really important in a scenario like that. Oh yeah, performance management is always a thing that you never anticipate having to do as a manager, as a leader. You're like, everybody's gonna be great. I'm never gonna have to, they'll leave if they want to. But then when you have to make those really hard decisions, it's really understanding what the structure is. And sometimes you're performance managing somebody out, but sometimes you're performance managing somebody up. And a lot of times people think that this is, I'm just trying to get them off. I'm putting them on a pip and I just want to get them off my team. But sometimes people need that to rise to the occasion. And a lot of times I talk to leaders and they're like, yeah, this person is not performing. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. And I always ask them because I'm, I'm this leadership focused person. I'm like, have you given them a hundred percent of what they need to be successful in this position? And 100% of the time they tell me no. And so if you haven't given somebody the roadmap, the tools, the things that they need to be successful in their position, then why are you trying to get them out of the organization? Yeah, it's a tough balance. There's no question. It's one of those things that 
you know, I've been in the unfortunate position of needing to offboard, you know, certain direct reports. It's one of those things that no matter how many times you do it, you'll still lose sleep over it, even if it is warranted or if there are those performance issues. And I think that that's kind of the driving thing is that I think that at the end of the day, as long as there is sufficient, you know, as we know that there has been sufficient support for this particular person to help them achieve their full potential, the resources have been there, the training has been there. You know, I've also been in situations where that offboarding conversation is actually not all that painful, where, you know, the rep themselves will kind of realize, hey, you know what, I have a certain skill set, I have a talent to do this, but for whatever reason, maybe this isn't the right industry, or maybe it's not the right, you know, segment for me, right? Maybe I'm selling a highly strategic enterprise sell, and maybe my skill set lends itself a little bit more to maybe a more SMB, you know, somewhat transactional style of a sales cycle. So I think that you know, sometimes if they really see that you have done everything you can to help support them and that you've been in their corner and sometimes that realization comes really organically for them and they don't harbor those negative feelings. Oftentimes it can even be a little bit of a relief. They'll be able to, yeah. you know, go to a, a process or a sales motion that might be better suited for their skill set. Yeah. And it can actually be something that is the best possible thing for their career path. So that's obviously the desirable outcome. Anytime you can get there and you can feel like both parties concerned feel like this is the right decision for both, like that's always the best. That's not to say that that always happens that way. But I think that's really what every leader should aspire to is that, you know, at the end of something like that, there's kind of a mutual understanding that this is something that could potentially be best for both parties. But, you know, there's a level of love and support there regardless. Yeah. And it's that breath of fresh air because sometimes you have a rep and they know this isn't the right thing for them, but they like the team. They like the company. They like you as a leader and they just don't know how to back away. But they also know that they're not operating at 100% of what they can do. And so sure. when you open that conversation and it's about, as you were talking, I was like, it's about being a human, right? As leaders, mm -hmm. many times we remove that human element and we're focused on our KPIs and our metrics and hitting this and doing this and doing that. And we forget that we are people first, right? We were once in the shoes of our reps and how would we want to be treated? How would we want this conversation to go? Exactly, yeah. I was in a position recently where I actually had to do this exact thing. And again, this is somebody who I care for really deeply. He's somebody who I, I have a ton of respect for. We've developed a really great relationship during our time working together. And I don't know, I almost felt like I was almost more sad than he was <laughs> in this situation. It was really, really tough. It was tough to see him go just because as a person, he's somebody who the team really, really loved. But as a performer, I think, you know, by his own admission, you know, he kind of acknowledged that for this and that reason, my skill set lends itself more to this other thing. I'm going to go and pursue that. And, you know, I'll be the first person to provide a reference for him in that case. So, you know, I have been thankful that in the situations where I've had to do that, I always try and leave that relationship as optimistic and as positive as possible. Again, it's a very, very hard thing. And it requires a lot of investment in the months and years leading up to it, right? It's yeah. not something that just happens on the day where, you know, maybe that bad news is coming. But if that love and support and that, that care is shown in the years and months leading up to it, then, you know, typically that relationship will continue on past that not so fun conversation. So now let's flip the script a little bit. Share with us a, a person, a situation where you had the opportunity to take somebody underperforming and really coach them up and you saw them maybe grow in their position or have them um, even be promoted above you or right mm -hmm. under you. Share with us a story about that. Sure. 
So this is actually a huge focal point for me. And to give you a little bit of context, so currently I'm at Closed, right? And at Closed, we focus on win-loss analysis. So that means that we obsess over what works and then we really are, are very proactive about maybe what's not working. So when we work with our clients, that's really something that we leverage very heavily. We think a lot about how can we mitigate the gaps that we have or first, how do we identify the gaps? Then what do we need to do to mitigate those gaps? all in an effort to make sure that we're winning more business, right? That's entirely what we do. So when I think about that from a leadership perspective, I'm very, very much focusing on win-loss when it comes to my own team. And that means that identifying what the potential gaps of each one of my direct reports, but then also being very proactive and very prescriptive about what can we do to win more or what can we do to increase our success rate. So I think that you know, one rep in particular, you know, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of leaders have had a very similar case that this is a rep that has a lot of potential in this rep's case, a lot of potential, but had a really hard time organizing that potential, right? So a lot of big ideas, a lot of energy. And it was almost one of those scenarios where if you can just kind of point them in the right direction and just make sure that they're pointed and then you just let them go and they'll take you to the moon. But for this rep, it was just a little bit hard to get them pointed in that right direction. So I think that, you know, through kind of this win-loss analysis lens where this is something that we really obsess over at Closed, you know, I think that we were able to really pinpoint some of the things of, okay, this is a distraction, this is a distraction. Let's make sure that we are really, really finite and really pointed with our, our energy, our efforts, our focus on a daily basis towards these specific things. And really, that's all it took, right? I definitely am not going to come and say that there was anything revelatory that I did in this case that completely changed everything. It really was the rep. Really, all I had to do was just try and point them in the right direction, help filter out some of the things that were maybe a little bit of abstraction. And it completely changed the outputs of this particular performer, which is always, I mean, as a leader, that's what you live for, right? That's everything. If you can see, you know, people go from, you know, a low performer to a better performer or the best, just kind of a mid-level performer to a fantastic performer. I mean, that's exactly why we do this. That's the most gratifying thing about this profession. Yeah, it's really the difference between being, I like to call it a true sales coach, understanding what your job as a leader, as a manager is. And you're like, it wasn't earth shattering, but it actually was earth shattering for that person. And for many people who are listening even to this podcast, they don't know what to do, right? You see somebody who has the potential and they always work and they're always doing the thing. And you're like, but how do I get them just hitting their numbers? How do I get them exceeding their numbers? And it's really helping them organize their brain. Mental spaghetti, it comes up again. <laughs> Mental spaghetti, because Mental they, have, spaghetti they have all these things going in. I gotta do this, I gotta do that, I gotta do that. And you help them organize that and you build a framework for them and you can see them become successful. And the key is because they want to be successful. So you see exactly. the thing in them and you help push it forward and then they take it the rest of the way. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. You said it perfectly, right? I think that, you know, how can we untangle some of that mental spaghetti and just simply put them in a position to succeed? The great thing is that, and I always go back to this, hiring is really hard. And we at Close, we have a very high hiring bar here. We hire some really exceptional people. So the way I think about it is let these people be exceptional. We hire them for a reason. They're bringing a skill set that is really valuable. Let's really lean into that. But, you know, again, sometimes as a leader, all that means that I have to do is let me kind of strip away the things that are maybe a distraction? How do we really get them focused on the things that are really going to matter and move the needle both in the short term and the long term? And yeah, sometimes those little changes, very rarely are they profound things. Typically, they're very little finite mechanical things that are very 101 type principles. 
But yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just a matter of working closely with them on those one-on-one type principles. And those are the things that make all the difference. It's very rarely like this, you know, revelatory mind-breaking thing. Oftentimes it's probably something that they've read in a sales book, you know, a million times before, but it's just contextually putting that in front of them in a way that's actually going to make sense. And then, you know, the great people that you hire, you let them be great because that's why you hired them. Yeah. And as you said, that context that I did a um, keynote speech recently for a sales kickoff and someone came up to me and they were like, the concepts that you shared with us today, I've heard them so many different times, but the way Mm. that you packaged it, it helped it stick. And you gave us action items and you helped us know what exactly we need to do. And many times what we do is we see 20 problems, 20 things that a rep needs to fix. And we give them eight And we say, go fix all of these eight in the next month and they become overwhelmed. So if we take Mm -hmm. it bit by bit and say, I want you to work on these two things for the next week. Okay, now we're going to re come back to them. You got that. Now let's move. Let's add another thing because you still have one that you're working on. Right. And give them those small little chunks so that they can feel accomplished because every salesperson doesn't matter what position they hold in the organization. They want to feel successful and success is not always just hitting numbers. It is knowing that I am moving forward 1% better every day. I love that 1% principle, right? That's something that I think every leader in every profession should absolutely live by. It's the marginal gains, right? That is where the biggest strides are going to be made and just those daily marginal gains. I absolutely love that. And I think that there is something to be said about being able to convey a lot of these teaching principles in a way that is going to be digestible to the audience, right? I mean, my team knows this and I've really tried to scale this back. I'm definitely no stranger to a cheesy sales leader, you know, a sports analogy, right? Just given my background. But given that I am also a history nerd, I try and incorporate other types of metaphors, analogies, things that always resonate with me, but maybe not resonate with somebody else with different life experience. So our ability as leaders to be able to diversify some of these teaching principles and package it in a way that, you know, even it's a very sophisticated principle, how can we package it in a way that's going to be very simple, very easy to understand, but you said it perfectly, you know, something that does have a call to action, something that does have you know, something that is measurable, something that's tangible that we can look back on and determine, you know, did this resonate? Is this something that that is effective? Are we seeing real change based on this training or this principle that we've deployed? I think you're 100% spot on there. So one of the things that I absolutely love when I'm working with organizations and we're building out their onboarding plan is win-loss analysis. And so I'm like, go make them comb through their territory. The previous sales won, the previous sales lost, and that is how they're going to learn their customers. That is how they're going to show up and have your customers teach you. But you guys are doing this win-loss analysis a little bit differently. So share with us how you guys are revolutionizing win-loss analysis in the industry. Yes, I would love to. So I'm obviously very excited about what we're doing here at Close. So when we talk about win-loss analysis, kind of the underlining theme of what we do and what we believe is that the most valuable insights relative to why you're winning and losing are the insights that will be pulled directly from your buyers and non-buyers, right? At the end of the day, you know, within any organization, there are always going to be hypotheses or, you know, speculation as to why we win and lose deals. You know, oftentimes sellers will think they have a good understanding of why they win and lose deals. But I think that there's a safe consensus that that's usually not the case. 
And so as a company, what do we make of this information, right? This is extremely important. If we don't know why we're winning and losing, then we're basically blind. So at Closed, there are essentially two components to the service we provide. We're kind of partially service and partially SaaS. Basically what we do is we actually go out and we interview the buyers and non-buyers of our clients as an independent third party. We engage them via a qualitative interview or a survey in some cases, but the interview is the main component to what we provide. We sit down and have a very human conversation with those buyers and non-buyers in an effort to understand, you know, how did this value proposition resonate relative to other competitors that you were looking into? What was the quality of the sales experience? What were some elements of the product that resonated with you? You know, from a packaging and pricing standpoint, Point. How did this compare to other competitors that you looked into? Anything relative to that evaluation that would impact their decision positively or negatively, we refer to that as a decision driver. And as we conduct X number of interviews over the course of time, you know, the idea is that we want to be able to identify key themes and trends that emerge. Because again, if I go and have one conversation with one buyer, it's not to say that's not valuable, but it's also anecdotal. If I conduct interviews with a significant portion of my pipeline, this is now indicative or the insights that we pull will be indicative of a larger theme or a larger trend, right? If we find that we are losing deals consistently because of X, Y, and Z things, great. This is now indicative of a trend. We've identified that. The question now becomes, what's the revenue attribution associated with those lost opportunities? So how much money did we lose if we were able to fix this thing? And that's what really drives the ROI behind closed. We get an understanding of what our blind spots are. We know how much it's going to cost to fix those blind spots but also how much money are we losing as a result of having this blind spot. So we provide our clients with a very bulletproof case and understanding of why they're losing, ultimately in an effort to help them win more. Wow, I love it. I love the bubble up that you guys are doing with this win-loss analysis. As I said, I've always just focused on it from a rep standpoint. Like you're learning more about, again, why your customers are buying from you, why they're not buying from you, but really taking that data and bubbling it up to, so they're not buying from you. And this is how much revenue you're losing. And this may be something you need to fix with your product so you can win more business. I think that that is something that all companies should be doing. And it's not something you want to do just at one time. It's something that you want to make sure that you know and you have that data because it helps strengthen your sales force. It helps, as we were talking about, um, salespeople getting defeated and feeling down. And it's like if they're continuing to lose for the same reason over and over and over again, let's take that data and help us become stronger and better. Exactly. And this really resonates with me just given, again, my background dating back to, you know, college athletics, game film, you can kind of equate mm. close to watching game film, right? Yeah. I think if we were to just walk out of a game that we lose and we all sat around saying, all right, everybody, why do we think that we lost? And we can all kind of pitch ideas as to, well, I think we lost because of this reason and that reason. It's not to say that that conversation is not valuable. There may be some good insights there, but ultimately let's go back to the game film. Let's actually review what happened and then we can actually make tangible conclusions as to what actually happened. And I, I really think that close is very much that. It really is game film, you know, for why we are winning and losing deals. And I think you said it perfectly, right? If we can do this on a continuous basis, and if this is just a standard part of our, really our strategic decision-making process, we need to make sure that we're ingratiating the voice of the customer into what is influencing and driving our product roadmap, our sales enablement, our marketing strategy, right? If it isn't customer driven or what's going to resonate with customers, then, you know, who's it for? They're ultimately the people that are going to be writing the checks. So we want to make sure that their voice is present when we make strategic decisions. And that's exactly why we engage these buyers in the form of a qualitative interview. That's the only way we got to go to the source. Those are the people that are making the purchases. So let's make sure that the decisions that we make are going to work well with what they're wanting from us. Wow. 
Like I said, I, everybody knows I'm a recovering chemist. I'm a data nerd. So <laughs> the more data you have, the better off you are at the ground floor and all the way up to the, the top floor. The more informed decisions you can make as an organization and even as a sales leader within an organization, maybe this is something that you're like, I want to institute this. Um, this is something that I think is really, really important for us. So if people want to connect with you, find out more about what you're doing at Closed or even pick your brain and ask you questions, what is the one best way that they can do that? Yeah, we'd love that. You know, one thing that we will actually do that I think a lot of the listeners will find very interesting is that we actually have a really interesting proof of concept where we will actually go and conduct a free interview on your behalf. So for anybody listening out there, if you have a particular opportunity that you feel like you should have won, right? It was right in your strike zone. It was, you know, persona made sense, ICP, everything. And you ended up losing the opportunity. You don't really know why. One of the things we will do is we will actually go and interview that buyer. We will aggregate it into our platform and we will meet with you and we will review with you exactly why you lost that deal. So it's a really strong proof of concept. It'll give you a really good understanding of what it's like working with an independent third party yeah. who will actually interview your buyers and give you a real understanding as to what influenced their decision, whether that be positive or negative. And yeah, that proof of concept is so powerful that, and it's, there's a reason why we offer this, right? Because again, we're big fans of win-loss analysis. We feel like we have a pretty good idea mm -hmm. of why we win and lose. When we conduct these proof of concepts, our win rates skyrocket just because yeah. it is so powerful. So I would say go to our website. Uh, there's actually a talk with us link there where you can get in touch with us. We would love to run that proof of concept interview for you and give you a real, a real feel for what it would be like working with closed and win-loss analysis. Awesome. Awesome. Now that I would say is something everyone should take you up on because at the end of the day, if you can get some independent research, I call it market research, understanding mm -hmm. your customers, why not? Right. And the only thing that you have to do is show up and understand the data that you've gotten. And you know, you make the decision then, is this valuable or is this not valuable for me? So thank you so much for sharing that with the listeners. No, thank you for having me, Wesleyan. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's been great. Thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing your time, your talent, and your expertise. This has been a fantastic conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. And that was another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. Remember, in all that you do, transform your sales. Until next time.